0: We're calling this Bible study a journey through the Psalms because that's what we're doing. We are journeying through the chapters of this book called Psalms. And just a quick reminder: the Psalms are hymns. They were written to be used in corporate worship. They were they were written to be used musically in corporate worship. And so it's the the Psalms are really it's a collection of songs. It's a it's a hymn book uh, that the nation of Israel used in their worship time. And you say, Wade, what are the Psalms about? I mean, what, are, what kind of songs are they, if you will? Well, notice there's a summary of the Psalms found there. Two different statements I want you to look at. The first comes from Kendall Easley. He writes, God, the true and glorious King, is worthy of all praise and prayer, thanksgiving and confidence, whatever the occasion in personal or community life. And so uh, the, the major driving theme of the Psalms is uh, whether we are on the mountaintop or in the valley, God is worthy of our worship, and God is worthy of our trust and our, sorry, and our confidence. And so we want to remember that as we read through the Psalms. The second quote comes from John Piper. He writes, The Psalms are songs, they are poems. They are written to awaken and express and shape the emotional life of God's people. Poetry and singing exist because God made us with emotions, not just thoughts. Our emotions are massively important. And so he's reminding us here that these are poetic. They're written to connect with us on an emotional level, which is a big deal because God made us with emotions, right? And I believe that's one of the reasons the Psalms are so dearly loved is because we can resonate with the, the joy, the, the anger, the um, anxiety, the grief... Uh, the confidence, the, the different emotions we see here, we can resonate because we've experienced those emotions in various ways. And we see how the psalmist take their emotions and place them at the feet of God. So that's why the psalms are so loved. We made it to Psalm 68. Notice there it says, To the choir master, a psalm of David, a song. Now We're not going to read the entire psalm right now. It's a longer psalm. It's 35 verses, so we're not going to read the entire thing right now, but we will touch on most of the verses as we walk our way through this study tonight. I'm going to just read the first part. Psalm 68, to the choir master, a psalm of David, a song. God shall arise, His enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate Him shall flee before Him. As smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away. As wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. But the righteous shall be glad. They shall exult before God. They shall be jubilant with joy. Sing to God. Sing praises to His name. Lift up a song to Him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord. Exult before Him. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in His holy habitation. And so uh, this psalm starts with calling uh, people to recognize that God marches forward even against His enemies. But when you are... On his side, when you know him in a personal way, then you can rejoice in your relationship with him. So keep that in mind. Let me pray for us and then we will walk our way through this psalm. Father in heaven, we come to you in Jesus' name and we are grateful, Lord, for your presence here. We're grateful, Lord, for this opportunity to open our Bibles and to study and to learn and to be encouraged and to be challenged. And so, Lord, I pray that you would use your word in our lives tonight. Help us understand it. Help us to respond to it. Lord, I pray that tomorrow will look different because of what happened in this room tonight. And we'll thank you and praise you for that grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, notice the title I've given to this study is Sing Praises to His Name. Sing Praises to His Name. And To get that, we need to understand the setting of Psalm 68. And I've given you a sentence there to help you to get the setting. This psalm seems to focus on the Ark of the Covenant being brought into Jerusalem. That's what Psalm 68 is about. Uh, written by David, uh, it's, it's, it's based upon 2 Samuel when the Ark is brought from the home of Obed-Eden into Jerusalem uh, where uh, there would be a temporary place for the Ark to be housed before David's son Solomon would build the permanent structure that we call the temple. But that's probably the setting of this psalm. And here's why we believe that. Look what it says in verse 1. God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. Now that's an allusion to a verse over in Numbers chapter 10. So turn to Numbers chapter 10. These are the words of Moses. Numbers chapter 10. It's the third book of the Bible. I mean fourth book. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus number yeah, fourth book. Numbers chapter 10 says in verse 35, Whenever the ark set out, the ark of the covenant, which symbolized the presence of God among His people, whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered. So anytime the ark would get ready to move, they would say this phrase, Arise, O Lord, let your enemies be scattered. So back in Psalm 68, he says, God shall arise, His enemies shall be scattered. He's directly referencing Numbers chapter 10. And then you look a little bit farther into Psalm 68, you see more of this allusion to the, the, the ark coming into the city. As a matter of fact, look what it says in Psalm 68, verse 15. O mountain of God, mountain of Bashan, O many-peak mountain, mountain of Bashan, why do you look with hatred, O many-peak mountain, at the mount that God desired for His abode? Yes, where the Lord will dwell forever. So speaking of mountains in that area, the mountain of Bashan was a mountain that was higher than Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And he's speaking poetically to the higher mountain. He's saying, hey, mountain, Mount Bashan, why are you jealous of the, of the lower mountain, the mountain in Jerusalem, the, the Mount Zion? Uh, that, that's the mount God has chosen uh, to, 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 to abide. That's what he says there. Uh, the, the, the Lord will dwell forever, he says, in verse 16. And, and then if you look with me in verse 24... David writes, "...your procession is seen, O God, the procession of my God, my king, into the sanctuary. The singers in front, the musicians last, between them virgins playing tambourines. Bless God in the great congregation. The Lord, O you who are of Israel's fountain, there is Benjamin, the least of them in the lead, the princes of Judah in their throng, the princes of Zebulun, the princes of Naphtali. Summon your power, O God, the power, O God, by which you have worked for us. Because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings shall bear gifts to you." So mentions a procession, mentions Jerusalem, mentions a temple... What resting place for the ark? So, this probably refers to 2 Samuel when David oversaw the ark coming into Jerusalem, where it would be placed there and be the center of worship for the nation of Israel. And so, that's kind of the setting. The ark is being moved into the city. And David sees this as an opportunity to reflect upon how great God is. Because if you look at the next little blank, it says, The purpose of Psalm 68 is this. In light of God's character, David is calling for exuberant praise. So there's this big parade, okay? procession. They're bringing the ark into Jerusalem, and he's reminding the people of how great God is. And look what it says in Psalm 68, verse 3. But the righteous shall be glad, they shall exult before God. The enemies flee before God. But the righteous shall be glad, they shall exult before God, they shall be jubilant with joy. Sing to God. Here it is. Sing praises to His name. Lift up a song to Him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord. Exult before Him. And so David is calling the people to worship. Hey, this ark represents the presence of God among us. And He's a great God. So we should sing praises. We should worship Him. And then fast forward to verse 32 of this chapter. He's calling Israel to praise God. He doesn't stop there. O kingdoms of the earth, sing to God. Sing praises to the Lord. Selah. So in this one psalm, David, as, as the ark comes into Jerusalem, he's reflecting on how great God is. And he calls Israel to sing praises to His name. He says, let's all stop there. I, I want to see all the kingdoms praising His name. I want to see all the kingdoms singing praises to To his name. So, in light of God's character, that's what Psalm 68 is about. uh, David is calling for exuberant praise, singing praises to the Lord. So, what are the reasons that David gives us? What are the aspects of his character that call for praise? Uh, or, Or why is God Worthy of praise. What is it about God that makes Him so worthy of our adoration and so worthy of our exuberant, our jubilant praise? Look what it says there uh, in verse 3. The righteous shall be glad, they shall exult before God, they shall be jubilant, jubilant with joy. Would you call your worship jubilant, excited, uh, passionate, or is it kind of humdrum, go through the motions? David here is saying... Our God is so great. And let me give you some reasons why He is so great. So that you will sing praises. You will have jubilant joy in His presence. So five reasons our God is worthy of praise. You ready? Okay. One's ready. That's good. That's encouraging. I like the, I like the anticipation and excitement. Five reasons our God is worthy of praise. Number one. Our great God gives victory over enemies. Our great God gives victory over enemies. Now we see in this psalm, David makes mention of the fact that the Lord defeated Israel's enemies. Verse 1 God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered. Those who hate him shall flee before him. In other words, when it's all said and done, God wins. Right? God wins. That's the point he's making. And he's mentioning how the Lord has defeated Israel's enemies. He starts in verse 7. And what David does here is he poetically kind of walks through the history of Israel. Verse 7, O God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, Selah, the earth quaked, the heavens poured down, rain before God, the one of Sinai, before God, the God of Israel. Rain in abundance, O God, you shed abroad, you restored your inheritance as it languished. Your flock found a dwelling in it. In your goodness, O oh God, you provided for the needy. And so probably what is speaking of here is God delivering His people from Egyptian bondage and slavery and leading them toward the promised land and providing for them. It says verse 11, "...the Lord gives His word. The women who announce the news are a great host. The kings of the armies, they flee, they flee. The women at home divide the spoil. Though you men lie among the sheepfolds. The wings of a dove covered with silver. Its pinions with shimmering gold." When the Almighty scatters kings there, it lets snow fall on Zalman. And so probably speaking there of God giving His people victory when they went into the Promised Land. We're studying that in Joshua on Sunday mornings. Also probably speaking maybe of of judges, uh, when God used some prominent women like Deborah uh, to defeat the Midianites uh, and gave them victory over their enemies. Uh, What was the name of the lady that uh, killed Jael with a tent peg? What was her name? Um, I'm drawing a blank right now. Remember, the bad guy came in her tent, she gave him some milk, and he went to sleep because he was really tired, and then she drove a tent peg through his skull. Uh, what was her name? Uh, her name was J.L. She was J.L. Cicero was the guy she killed, right? Is that right, J.L.? Is that right, Frank, J.L.? Okay, yeah, all right. So J.L. was one. So, so judges, you know, mentions women here. Uh, uh, the men in line she sheepfolds, the women at home divide the spoils. But... It, Probably a reference to Deborah, the great leader, uh, the prophetess, the great leader uh, that led them to rise up against the Midianites. And Jael, who drove a, a tent peg through the bad guy's uh, head. And, and uh, it, it just uh, speaks of the victories that God gave Israel. He, he, he led them out of Egypt, defeated Pharaoh. He led them in the Promised Land, defeated the, the people living in that Promised Land. He, he uh, would rise up with judges to help defeat Uh, foreign oppressors, the Lord defeated constantly, consistently Israel's enemies. So David's making mention there of the way God had defeated their enemies. But not only does the Lord defeat Israel's enemies, this is where it gets kind of personal, the Lord defeats our enemies. The Lord defeats our enemies. There's an interesting verse uh, in verse 17. David says here, "...the chariots of God..." are twice ten thousand, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. So speaking of God's power, even when they were in the wilderness, God's power among His people, uh, more powerful than the peoples that would come against them, the nations that would come against them. This is in verse 18, You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train, and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. So speaking there of God's victory... You know, in this day and time, often when an army would conquer another army, army, they would lead the vanquished warriors in a procession. They would come back into the city in a victory parade, and they would have spoils from the victory. They would have the vanquished army that was still alive. They would bring them in. Uh, to show their power over the enemy. So this is probably an allusion to that ancient practice. Hey, God has defeated our enemies. Uh, his, his chariots are twice 10,000. And He, he leads host of ca- a host of captives. It's a way for David to say poetically, God is, has vanquished the enemy. He has defeated them. And, and, and He says He's received gifts among men. He, he's given the spoils, the blessings to His people. So He's speaking here of God's victory over the enemy. But here's the interesting thing. This verse is repeated in the New Testament. And it's applied to the work of Jesus Christ. Let me show you this. Look look with me in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Verse 7. Ephesians 4 verse 7. Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus. Gentile church. Gentile means uh, not Jews. These were not Jews. They were were Gentile believers. He says, verse 7, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, and he's quoting here from Psalm 68, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, uh, Psalm 68 says he received gifts... Uh, this verse says he gave gifts. Paul changes the wording to fit what he's trying to tell us about Jesus Christ. He says, in saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So here's what Paul's saying. He's saying, just like God defeated the enemies of Israel, Jesus Christ left heaven and descended. He came to this earth to defeat our enemies, the enemies of the Gentile believers and our enemies. Well, who are our enemies? Well, earlier in Ephesians, he says in chapter 2 that we are by nature children of wrath, so we've got the flesh. That's an enemy, right? Always oh, trying to pull us away from God. Uh, we've got a sin nature. That's our enemy. Satan is always trying to destroy us. I would call him an enemy. How about you? And then there's the world, the the ungodly system that we are bombarded with, always trying to to move us away from faithful service to the Lord. And so all of us live in the world. All of us are uh, hated by Satan. All of us have a sin nature. We have those enemies uh, in our life that will destroy us. But Jesus Christ left heaven... And He came to earth and He died on the cross to defeat our enemies. When He died on the cross, He defeated our sin and gave us power to be set free from our sin. He, he gave us forgiveness when we embrace Him as our Lord and Savior because He purchased it on the cross. So He defeated the enemy of sin and He defeated the enemy of self and he broke the power of Satan over our life, so He defeated Satan. And He broke the power of the world over our life, so He defeated the world. And so, Jesus Christ left heaven, descended to the earth, died on the cross, was buried, rose from the dead, and because of that, our greatest enemies have been vanquished. Amen? And, and just like there was spoil that the Lord received in the Old Testament when He would vanquish enemies, He's saying here, Jesus gives gifts instead of receiving he, he gives gifts to His people, and He speaks there of the gifts that He gives. He says He gave, verse 11, to the church, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. These are different offices that God has put in place for uh, leadership of His church. And I can say a lot about those four things, but I don't get into that right now. But he gives these four groups to the church to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And so Jesus gives these gifts to his church. And so this Psalm 68 verse is applied to Jesus Christ. So in Psalm 68, it means the Lord defeated the enemies of Israel. In Ephesians 4, it means Jesus defeated our enemies. Everybody got that? And we should be glad that Jesus defeats our enemies. I remember watching with my dad growing up, Wide World of Sports. Remember that show? And you just can't, you just can't ever forget the beginning of the show. Because it talks about the thrill of victory, and then it shows this skier wiping out. Remember, he's, he's hurtling down the hill and flipping head over heels, and it says, and the what? Agony of defeat, right? Agony of defeat. Well, listen to me. Because Jesus Christ died on the cross, because He rose from the grave, because He will forgive you and transform you and give you the power of the Spirit in your life, because our God is a great, all-powerful God, you don't have to live in the agony of defeat. You can experience the thrill of victory. Amen? Because of what Jesus Christ has done. Not because you're good or because you can figure it out, but because Jesus is good. And Jesus died and Jesus rose. And if you embrace Him as your Lord and Savior, He will apply to your life His finished work and He will change the trajectory of your life and He will forgive you and set you free and use you. That's victory, right? And so we need to be grateful that our great God is victorious over our enemies. We should find reason to praise Him, sing praises to His name, exuberant praise, because He is victorious. Number two, second reason that our God is worthy of praise. Our great God is moved with compassion by the weak and oppressed. We're speaking of God's character and nature. And it says there in Psalm 68 verse 5, Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in His holy habitation. Isn't it interesting that speaking of God overthrowing kings and enemies and His enemies scattering before Him, but but this great, victorious, all-powerful, vanquishing God also is concerned about those who are weak and oppressed. It mentions here the, 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 the orphan and the Widow and in, in this day and time, when when this was written, it, to be an orphan or to be a widow was an extremely vulnerable position. Extremely vulnerable, uh, vulnerable position. It says here that God cares about those who are in a vulnerable position. So, what does that mean? It means that when people oppress the vulnerable, when people uh, oppress the weak or the helpless. It is an affront to God. Or let me say it like this. To afflict someone who is helpless is to anger God. To afflict someone who is helpless is to anger God. Over in Proverbs 23, verse 10, there are all sorts of verses like this uh, throughout the Bible, throughout Proverbs. But in Proverbs 23, verse 10, it says, Do not move an ancient landmark or enter the fields of the fatherless for their redeemer is strong he will plead their cause against you in other words, if you find someone that is weak and vulnerable and don't just go take their field, you could they couldn't do anything about it but understand you've got to you don't have to deal with the Lord the redeemer He will fight for them those are fighting words <laughs> you, don't want to, you don't want to oppress the, the helpless and the afflicted because it makes God angry it makes God Angry, And whenever he sees it, biblical history, human history, whenever there are people who are weak and vulnerable, uh, who are being oppressed by the evil, by the powerful, it, it angers God. So what does that mean for us? It means that God desires that His people reflect His character by taking care of those who need help. It, it, listen, if God cares about those who are vulnerable, then His people should care about those who are vulnerable. Amen? I mean, we should reflect the heart of God for those that need help, for those that have needs in their life. Matter of fact, over in James, book of James, chapter 1, New Testament book of James, chapter 1, listen to what James writes to the Christians in the first century. He says, in. James 1.27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God. So what, what kind of um, spiritual practice is God looking for from, his, from believers? He writes, The Father is this, here it is, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. God wants His people to take care of those that may need some help. That's what He's saying. Not, not oppress them, uh, but to help them. That, that, that's the point of this verse. And so, Psalm 68 just unveils the heart of God. And, and if that's His heart, that should be our heart. But aren't you God, glad that our God that we worship, we're s- gathered here to worship and learn from today, we're reading His Word, our God who is all-powerful, He put the stars in their places, aren't you glad He cares about those that sometimes no one else cares about? Isn't that an amazing... Characteristic of our great God? He's not just some all-powerful uh, you know, um, uh, dictator. He's all-powerful, but His nature, his, his heart is perfect and pure. And He is love. And He cares for others and has compassion for those, uh, particularly those who cannot help themselves. And so, our great God... Is moved with compassion by the weak and oppressed. So, Christians, listen, we always need to be on the lookout. We always need to think about this aspect of God's character. We always need to be on the lookout to help those that need some help. Because that would if 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 oppression of those folks makes God angry, then helping them in Jesus' name would make him smile. Right? And, and you have to look very far to find people that uh, are in vulnerable situations that need some help, and we as a church are called to be that front line of help in Jesus' name. One one area that is, is just so um, uh, s- such a such a huge issue in our nation. Speaking of helplessness, are are babies in mothers' wombs? Who's more helpless than a baby, right? And 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 that's why the pro life issue is such a big issue to me. Because the Bible says that every life is a life created in the very image of God. The Bible speaks of babies in Psalm 139 being knit together in their mother's womb. God does that. And the Bible speaks of, of God having a plan and purpose for that baby's life before they even see the light of day. And so, listen, don't don't get fooled into thinking that, that the pro-life thing is some political hot button issue. It is a, it, Sanctity of life is a biblical mandate. It's what God calls us to be about. To, we should be protectors of life from, from a mother's womb to natural death. Take someone into eternity. Amen? And we, we should be protectors of life uh, all along the way. This has, uh, this has uh, implications when it comes to uh, racism and, and, and prejudice. Uh, when, when there's a group of people, for whatever reason, that hate another group of people based upon skin color. This is all really um, uh, front and center right now in our nation with what went on in Charlottesville and, and, and some of the things that are happening in our, in our culture right now. Uh, listen to me. Uh, if you get to a place where there is hatred in your life for someone else, based upon whatever, skin color, uh, where they're from, what language they speak, whatever, Your hatred, listen to this, your hatred is directed to an image bearer. They bear the image of Almighty God. Think about that. That's serious business. God doesn't want us hating people. He made them. He created them. And guess what? Jesus died for them. And so for us to find ourselves in a position where we are... espousing hatred to a group of people that that are loved by Jesus is totally antithetical to the gospel. Just read Ephesians chapter 2. The the Bible says that Jesus died on the cross to bring us into a relationship with God, but He also died on the cross to bring us into a relationship with one another. Through the cross, Jews and Gentiles become one and worship the same God. And, And so there are all sorts of areas that we see people that are mistreated or oppressed, and we can go, there's all, with all sorts of implications for this. Um, I think there's implications. I'm, I'm encouraged by what I see happening in our church right now. There is a, a growing number of people that are, that are fostering and moving towards adoption, uh, adopting uh, domestically, ad- adopting overseas, that these families have made commitments to intersect these lives of these of these children who are in helpless situations, they cannot help themselves, and they are rescuing them and adopting them, which is a beautiful picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. And 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 they are impacting a, a, a person's trajectory for time and for eternity. Think about how significant that is. If that's not a reflection of, of the heart of God, going and, and rescuing a, a, a helpless child or or baby in a compromising situation and Providing for them and caring for them and loving them and 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 sharing truth with them and pointing them to the God who loves them and the Jesus who died for them. I mean, what a picture of the compassionate heart of God, Amen. And I want you to know that's happening in our church. I'm, there's there is a, a movement. In our church is happening in an ever increasing way. And so when you when you know somebody that's adopting or fostering, it, it's hard. I mean, it's a lot of rigmarole and paperwork and. And the foster program is, is difficult. It's, there's, there, there's, a, there's a lot of dysfunction in that. And, 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 and good people that get involved, they have the tendency, oh, I just, I just, oh it's just too much. And, and, and it takes some encouragement for, for good folks to stay plugged in and to keep on keeping on. So if you know somebody that, that's fostering or adopting, listen, they are doing what we're talking about right here. They're caring for those that need some help. And, and, and maybe you're not fostering adoption, adopting, but you can, you can help them and encourage them, can't you? You can love on them, help support them, whatever the case may be. And you've done that. We've, I could name some examples of people in our church. You've helped and done that. But, but we want to see that happen in an ever-increasing way. We could go on and on. I mean, listen to me. Uh, Robert Zacharias said, if you speak to a hurting world, you never lack an audience. You don't have to look very far at all to find people that need some help. Amen? So let's let's reflect the heart of God and help those that need help. Our great God is moved with compassion by the weak and oppressed. That's a a reason that God is worthy of praise. Number three, our great God saves. Our great God saves. I already alluded to this. Not alluded, I spoke of this when I spoke of Jesus Christ and His finished work. uh, But look what it says in verse 19 of Psalm 68. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears us up. God is our what? Salvation, say law. Our God is a God of what? A salvation. And to God the Lord belong deliverances from death. Our great God saves. So what he's speaking of, uh, specifically in verse 19 and 20, is God's deliverance from enemies. How He protected them and preserved them as a people. And if you, again, I kind of walked you through this, but if you look through the kind of the ebb and flow of the beginning of this psalm, it, it speaks of God taking His people from bondage in Egypt and then protecting them, leading to the promised land where they would have rest. He gave them rest in the promised land. And this journey from bondage to rest that we find in uh, the history of Israel beautifully parallels the Christian life. This this journey of bondage to rest beautifully parallels the Christian life. Before you met Christ, you were in bondage. We already established that. You were in slavery to sin and to self and to Satan. You were in your sin. You were far from God, separated from God, and you could not save yourself. You needed a rescuer, right? And so Jesus comes and He He sets you free. He, He leads you out of bondage and He leads you into rest. The promised land that God gave Israel is a picture of rest for the Christian. And we know that because Hebrews 4 says that, that the rest of the promised land is a picture of the rest in the Christian life. And he says there specifically that when you become a Christian, you rest because you no longer think that you have to earn your salvation. God's given it to you as a gift of grace, and you can rest in knowing that the work's been done by Christ, and you can rest in the grace and mercy of God. See, I'm I'm, I'm a, I'm a Christ follower, but I'm not trying to earn my salvation. It's already been purchased by Christ. He's done it all. Amen? If my salvation was up to me, I'd be in big trouble. Big trouble. I'm not good enough to get saved. I'm not good enough to stay saved. Are you? Adrian Rogers used to say he wouldn't trust his best five minutes to get him into heaven. Jesus did it all. He, he paid the, the, the entire penalty for our sin on the cross. Everything we would ever do, past, present, future, things before we were saved, things after we saved, Jesus died for all of those sins on the cross. They've been paid for, and he gave us salvation, forgiveness as a free gift. So now we can rest. The work's been done. We're in Christ. Sins have been washed away. Heaven is in our future nothing and no one can snatch us out of God's hand. John chapter 10 says that. Nothing, Romans 8, can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We can rest, right? We can rest free from the oppression of the enemies of our soul. Just like Israel was free from their enemies when God gave them rest in the promised land. And so this this picture of, of freedom from bondage and rest in the promised land is a beautiful parallel of the Christian life. If you're a Christian, you have, you have had that same, you, you, you've taken that same journey. Delivered from bondage, set free, and given the rest that is found only in Jesus Christ. And so it's a picture of God saving us. The salvation of Israel is a picture of God offering salvation to us. And aren't you glad that our great God saves? Now again, he didn't have to. That's why it's called grace. Grace means undeserved favor. We don't deserve any of it. He didn't have to, but He did it out of His grace. So our great God saves. Number four, why should we sing exuberant praises to God? Our great God is a personal God. Our great God is a personal God. Look in verse 19. Blessed be the Lord, I love this, who daily bears us up. Daily bears us up. God is our salvation. Selah. And so the psalmist here is saying, David saying, that God is a God of daily provision, daily uh, protection, daily sustenance. He's a God who daily is active in our lives. By the way, an interesting study is if you look through the Bible, maybe do a word search, but look at the things God does daily in our lives and look at the things we're called to do daily in our lives, but that's an entirely different sermon. Maybe we'll do that one night. But, but it speaks here of, of God's daily activity in our life. Now here's the point I want you to walk away with under no, number four. God is not just the God of the big picture. He is a God that is concerned with the most minute details of our lives. He's a God that's concerned with the most minute details of our lives. He is daily at work in you. Now, uh, early on in the founding of our country, many of our nation's leaders were, I want to say many, but some of our nation's leaders were deists. And deists was kind of a, a, a popular uh, religious philosophy that was uh, well known in that day. And you don't hear people calling themselves deists today but I believe that we have a lot of practical deists. And let me explain to you what I mean by that. A deist uh, was a person, someone that described that philosophy, they believed that there was a God. So they weren't atheists, they were deists. They believed there was a God. But they believed that, that God was not really knowable. He, he was behind the universe and he kind of wound it up like a clock and then kind of set it down and, and now it's just kind of unfolding uh, after he's kind of hands off. And and the idea of deism is that God is is beyond knowing, He's detached. Kind of the picture I get in my head is kind of His arms crossed, just kind of watching things transpire in His created universe. Now, um, that philosophy uh, is antithetical to what the Bible says. A God who made everything, He upholds everything, He preserves it all, He's daily involved in holding the universe together, and a God who cares about the people living on planet Earth intimately. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that this God knows how many hairs are on our head. Think about that. He knows you by name. When he encountered Saul on the road to Damascus, what did he say? Saul, Saul, right? When he wanted to call Samuel to be a leader in Israel. He called out his name. Samuel called him by name. God is a God who knows our name. He he knows everything about us. It says over in Psalm 56 that God keeps our tears in a bottle. Think about that one. He knows what's behind every tear that streams down your cheek. He knows your hurts. He knows your concerns. He knows your anxieties. He knows your struggles. He knows your joys. He knows your propensities. He knows everything about you and He cares about even the most minute details of our lives. And so uh, don't feel like that God is so busy running the universe that He's too busy for you. He, he cares about you and He invites you to come to Him with your needs, He invites you to come to Him with your concerns. He, he cares, He really does. Let me say it like this. He cares about you more than you want to be cared about. Amazing, isn't it? And so our God is a a personal God, and and because of that, He He is worthy of our praise. Let me give you a final reason that God's worthy of praise, and we'll be through. First of all, our great God gives victory over enemies. Our great God is moved with compassion by the weak and oppressed. Our great God saves. Our great God is a personal God. And then fifth and last, our great God has a global focus. A global focus. Now look back with me in Psalm 68, verse 28. Summon your power, O God, the power, O God, by which you have worked for us. Because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings shall bear gifts to you. Rebuke the beasts that dwell among the reeds, the herd of bulls with the calves of the peoples. Trample underfoot those who lust after tribute. Scatter the peoples who delight in war. Nobles shall come from Egypt. Cush, which is modern-day Ethiopia. These are North African countries. Cush shall hasten to stretch out our hands to God. O kingdoms of the earth, sing to God. Sing praises to the Lord, say To him who rides in the heavens, the ancient heavens. Behold, he sends out his voice, his mighty voice. Ascribe power to God, whose majesty is over Israel, whose power is in the skies. Awesome is God from his sanctuary, the God of Israel. He is the one who gives power and strength to his people. Blessed be God. So here's what David's doing. As As the ark is coming into Jerusalem, he's looking back. God, you've been so good to Israel. You you brought us out of Egypt. You you vanquished our enemies. You protected us. You preserved us. You you gave us rest in the promised land. You're present with us. The ark symbolizes your presence. You've been so good to Israel. So he's looking back at God's faithfulness to the Jews. But here at the end of the psalm, David is looking forward to God's work and activity in this world. And he's saying there's coming a time... When nations will come to this place where the ark is going to be, Jerusalem, they'll come to this place and they will worship you just like the, the Israelites do. He's, he's, he's speaking of God's global focus. God is working in this world so that all nations will come and worship Him because He's worthy of their worship. So if you look in your notes, the Lord rightly desires worship from all nations and People's now, how is this? How is this fulfilled? There's coming a time when the when Egypt and Cush, when all the kingdoms will come and worship you. How is this fulfilled? Well, well hold your place. But turn to Revelation chapter twenty-one, the last book in the Bible. If you get to the maps, you've gone too far. Amen. Revelation twenty-one. This is when. God ushers in a new heavens and a new earth. So this is where Christians will dwell for eternity. The new heavens, new earth. There's a new Jerusalem, the city that comes out of heaven, prepared by God to be the centerpiece of the new heavens and the new earth. And it says in Revelation 21, verse 22, John's trying to describe what he's seeing, this vision of of the future, vision of eternity. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. So you better watch the solar eclipse, because according to this, there won't be any solar eclipses in heaven. All right? So get out there with some safe glasses and enjoy that phenomenon, because no sun and moon in heaven. Everybody got that? Okay. All right. me like, What are you talking about? Read the news. Okay. Now look what it says. The lamp is is the Lamb. His glory will shine. That's all you need. By its light, the Lamb's light, verse 24, will the nations walk. Not just Jews, the nations. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day. There will be no night there. In other words, there will be continual unfettered access to the one true God for His people. Isn't that cool? They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So only those that have been forgiven by Christ will be in heaven and get to experience Jesus, the Lamb, in the new Jerusalem. But notice here, there will be nations coming. Now this tells me that there will be a maintaining of ethnic distinction in heaven. I believe there'll be uh, people that look very different, just like there are people very different on earth today, different skin colors, different um, customs, different clothing, different languages. I believe we'll understand the languages. We'll be able to understand each other, but there'll be different languages. And it will be this beautiful picture of of all the peoples of the earth coming together to worship the one true God. Isn't that cool? So that's how Psalm 68 is fulfilled. It's going to be fulfilled in heaven. And then look in chapter 22, verse 1 of of Revelation. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were four... The healing of the what? Nations. The nations will experience the continual life that comes in eternity. And so, the Lord rightly desires worship from all nations of people because He's worthy of it. He's worthy of worship and praise. He's perfect. He deserves everyone's praise. And one day, there will be representatives from every people group on the face of this earth, around the throne of Christ, coming in and out of the gates of the New Jerusalem, worshiping the Lamb who was slain. So our great God has a global focus. This is, where, this is where human history is headed. We talked about this last week. This is where it's all headed, where the nations will worship Christ. So what does that mean for us? The most important venture that we can be involved in, in our short stay on this earth, is bringing new worshipers to the feet of Jesus. There's nothing more important that you can give your life to than bringing new worshipers to the feet of Jesus. Because He's worthy. And that's what He's doing. That's what He's actively doing in the world. When it's all said and done, it's going to be about people recognizing from every tribe, every tongue, the glory of God. Amen? And we get to be a part of gathering the nations. of, Of seeing this come to fruition. When you lead someone to Christ, you'll see them around the throne one day, won't you? Can you imagine how fulfilling it will be to see people around the throne of Jesus and you were the one that shared the good news with them so they could get there? How how fulfilling will that be, right? And so the the most important venture we can be involved in is bringing new worshipers to the feet of Jesus. I wrote this down. This venture becomes... An adventure. In other words, there's nothing more thrilling, more fulfilling than being an instrument in the hands of God to share good news about a Savior who died and rose again. So that people who are far from God can be forgiven of their sins, reconciled, adopted by the one true God, and begin to give Him the worship that He alone deserves. I'm telling you, there's nothing more exciting than that. Nothing more exciting than leading people to the feet of Jesus. So, if you're having trouble thinking of reasons why we should sing praises to His name, our great God gives victory over enemies. Our great God is moved with compassion by the weak and oppressed. Our great God saves. Our great God is a personal God. And our great God has a global focus. In light of all of this, you and I should sing and shout and lift up praises to God. He's worthy, amen? And by the way, if, if, I don't want to get off on a tangent here, but I'm going to. So, and, I, and I, I'm preaching to the choir when I say this. But if all of this that I just shared about God is true, and it is, Then no one should have to beg you to go to church. Right? He's worthy. He's worthy. It ought to be the highlight of your week. I, I told my kids this recently. I said, I want y'all to understand that I work at Longview Point. I'm a, I'm a pastor and, and I'm, I'm there to preach the word, but we don't go to church because I'm a pastor, we go to church because we're Christians. And even if I wasn't a pastor, we'd be a church because He's worthy. Amen? He's worthy. And so uh, don't be that person that has to be hunted down. All right? People should know where you're going to be. I I was encouraged uh, uh, reading an article today that in the brand new stadium of the Atlanta Falcons, uh, Mercedes-Benz Stadium, maybe you saw this article today. Um, uh, It's where the first game of the college football season will be played, which will be Florida State and Alabama. I may or may not be watching that game. Um, But there's a Chick-fil-A. And the stadium's predominantly to be used for uh, Sunday NFL football games. That's when they play football. And there's a Chick-fil-A. Well, guess what? Chick-fil-A's closed on Sundays. And people can't believe that Chick-fil-A would put a restaurant in a stadium that's going to be used for NFL Sunday football. But Chick-fil-A knows what Sundays are all about, don't they? And we ought to know what Sundays are all about. It's the the corporate gathering of God's people to sing praises to a God who is worthy of our worship and praise. Amen? All right.